I think that we use that language of fatherhood. Scripture uses that language. Jesus uses that language because it does capture what has happened in the incarnation itself. I hope that I could maybe through relationship lead them to a place where they see that when they call God Father, what they're really saying is that God became human for me. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, dear podcast listeners. He is risen. Christos Anesti. Happy Easter to you. Hope it's been a good one. This Easter, I find myself at a charismatic evangelical parish here in Atlanta. And let me just say, boy, do they know how to party at Easter time. After a very festive Sunday morning service with gospel music and children waving praise banners, Easter Day wrapped up with a block party at a parishioner's house, complete with balloons, streamers, music, mountains of cakes and chicken shawarma and a champagne toast to Jesus. Yes to Jesus. It was amazing. This is something I have never seen before, and I think Christians should very much make a practice of. But it was when they brought out the kids' pinata and the confetti cannons that somebody turned to me and said, I feel like I'm at a giant gender reveal party. Well, it wasn't a gender reveal party, though there was a lot of pink and blue confetti. And today's episode isn't a gender reveal either, but the title of Amy Peeler's new book, Women and the Gender of God, makes you wonder just for a second if that's what she's going to do. But no, spicy title aside, this is a deep scriptural exploration of the way gender and human embodiment color our relationship with God. And if we take the virgin birth seriously, then not only color it, but in some ways substantiate it. Whether you're in a world that venerates the Virgin Mother or debates about complementarian versus egalitarian, you're going to find something in this conversation that will challenge and teach you about the life of our Lord with us through the way scripture and imagination use gender, through the lives of women, and through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And by the end, you might get the impression that evangelicals will be leading the next big Marian movement. The Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler is our guest today, of course. She is Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and Associate Rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Geneva, Illinois. She is the author of Women and the Gender of God, You Are My Son, The Family of God in the Epistle to the Hebrews, and co-author of Hebrews, an Introduction and Study Guide. She is a member of the Institute for Biblical Research, Society of Biblical Literature, and a fellow with the Center for Pastor Theologians. Interviewing Amy is the Reverend Dr. Wesley Hill, Associate Professor of New Testament at Western Theological Seminary and Scripture Scholar at Church of the Incarnation, Dallas. Now, I will not draw out the suspense any longer about our bouncing baby podcast episode. She's ready for you. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Amy, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to talk with you and great to talk with those who are listening. Well, and congratulations on the, the new book. It's called Women and the Gender of God, just recently released. Is that right? That's right. Came out in October, and it's been a pretty amazing few months hearing people are reading it and hearing their reactions. That's wonderful. Well, as listeners will have heard from our introduction of you, you are a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois, and you also serve as a priest. Could you talk about maybe how those callings kind of dovetail for you? 
Yes. I always say I'm really grateful that I teach New Testament and I don't happen to teach like physics or something. I'm sure that would be amazing. (laughs) But it does feel like those pieces of my life just align perfectly. So I kind of started college and discovered biblical studies. Oh, I want to be a professor. And that was my goal for almost 10 years before I started to get a sense that maybe God would have me use my gifts in the church as well. And so that was a bit later in my life. But for the last six years, I've been professor here at Wheaton for 11 years, and then I've been ordained for six. And I'm so grateful to see how my devotional life and Mm. prepping for church, my scholarship, my teaching, they just all work together. That's wonderful. Well, I hope that listeners will sort of poke around and see how you've written on a wide variety of things. And you're invested in the academy, obviously, but also deeply in the church. So that's that's really right, kind of in the wheelhouse of the living church in many ways. So, you know, I, I, so I first, I think I first learned that you were working on some of the themes in this book when I heard that you and your colleague, Matthew Milliner, who teaches in the art department at Wheaton, that you were co-teaching a class at Wheaton on Mary. Yes. And so I, a couple things there that I think are interesting. Number one is evangelicals. I went to Wheaton College myself, so I know they're my tribe, they're my family. <laughs> and we don't, we don't often prioritize thinking about Mary in the way that we should do. Yes. I also think that for a lot of our listeners, coming from the more Anglo-Catholic tradition associated with the living church, are very used to talking about Mary and and are eager to see we evangelicals kind of hop on board. I wonder, I think our listeners might find it fascinating just to hear you describe that collaboration with Matt and maybe how that kind of fed into this project in oh, some ways. Yeah, I, I mean, in many ways, I, I read Matt's book. Matt had a book kind of blessedly that came out on the same day. And we've been working I on I saw that. Project. That's wonderful. I mean, it was just, and we have different publishers. There was no, it truly felt like God's favor. Just to say, yeah, this is wonderful. But I read Matt's book just for my own pleasure this semester. And it was amazing how when you put those books together, you get a pretty clear sense of what we yeah. do in this class. And we've taught about over the period of five years, four times, just to have a phenomenal experience. So really- Before you, book- before you describe that, class, I might just say for listeners sake, Matthew Milner's book is called Mother of the Lamb. Yes. And it's a it's an art historical discussion of a of a famous style of iconography with with Mary and, and the Christ child. So but yes, talk about the class. Yeah. So and Matt and I are long term friends. I mean, that's mm. another great gift. We started seminary together in mm. 2002. Pretty quickly, we're invited into a small group and remained in that small group for eight years. And so have been lifelong kind of walking the journey of Christianity together. And now we live on the same street. And so he has known about my work for decades. And as I had been very interested in the fatherhood of God, that's my dissertation work in Hebrews, very interested in Christian identity as the sons and daughters of God. Mm. He just kind of said offhandedly, we were having Thanksgiving dinner, if I remember correctly, like you're talking about fatherhood and sonship, you really are missing something if you don't talk about Mary. Mm. And I knew that had been his work. I knew he traveled, but I'd never really studied it for myself. And so truly at his encouragement and seeing his passion, Mm -hmm. I said, well, I think he's actually right. There's something vastly important that I've not paid attention to given my background. Maybe my pastors talked about her and I just didn't listen. I'm not sure, but it wasn't prominent. And so once I started diving in 
by virtue of my own discipline in the New Testament, really giving attention to her story, primarily in Matthew and Luke, I was just overwhelmed at the riches. Yeah. And that kind of started in our class as I kind of stepped alongside of him. He had had this class for several times before, and then I was invited in Great. to kind of do the Bible theology, even though Matt is a wonderful theologian. He doesn't need me, but I do bring the biblical exegesis piece that maybe he's not been as trained in as I have been. And then when I went on sabbatical, I could really start to write. Yes. And that's where I just just really wrote a majority of everything about Mary in the book kind of was birthed out of the class. And then in that, in that space and time. How was it received by the students? Did, did they seem surprised? Did they seem pleasantly surprised maybe or, or resistant? Oh, not, not resistant. Like it, 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 the class itself. I mean, I think people kind of raise an eyebrow. Oh, Mary at Wheaton, like people yes. want to know more, but Matt's been thinking about her place in the Christian story for so long at Wheaton that he's kind of broken down the barriers, if there were any, really. But students seem to um, be hungry for this. Wonderful. They, they have a sense that those who have not thought about her story, except for maybe a week or two at Christmas, have this deep sense that something's missing. And so they kind of flock to the class. We've had to turn them away. <laughs> that's so, excellent. That's, that's the kind of problem you want to have. Exactly, exactly. So if there are pockets of resistance, we don't know about it. And there's yeah. so many that want to learn more that right. we've had a rich and an amazing experience every time. Mm -hmm. I remember reading a piece that Matt wrote a few years ago called Our Lady of Wheaton. Exactly, I think it was called exactly. yes. wonderful. So yeah. So I mean, your book in many ways is a I mean, it's a work of biblical scholarship. It's it it gets into the weeds of the right. text. And I think biblical scholars who come to it, we we won't have any trouble recognizing the genre of it. You know, it, it is it is a book of biblical studies, which is great. But it really comes at the issues obliquely, you might say. It's it's yeah. much more, I mean, Mary, as we've said, is very prominent. She's on the cover of the book. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm used to, you probably are as well, picking up books on women in the New Testament. And it's sort of the same old passages that are that are raked over again and again. Right. But you're, you're coming at it kind of from a fresh angle. I wonder if you could just describe a bit of the shape of the book and and how you how you come at things. Yes, yes. And I have to give honor to whom honor is due there. I, I was so well-trained at PTS, have so many mentors there. Ross Wagner, my advisor, is absolutely phenomenal. But in taking several seminars with Beverly Gaventa, she's the one that just had a practice of saying to us, you know, if you find yourself or you read about a debate that's just locked up, ask a different question. And I think that's just good teaching. That's great. So at base, being a Protestant in the evangelical camp, like the debates about women in the church have been had and yes. there's great literature and I would encourage people to read it. Yes. But I just had the sense that I don't have anything else I want to say about that at the moment. Right. I think I have some thoughts now that I might like to contribute from the lens of Mary, but I did want to ask a different question. And truly, I didn't want to kind of enter in this debate to try to get one side to win. I wanted everyone, wherever they sit on those questions, 
to come away with a deeper sense of awe of what God has done for us. Is it, let's just talk about something different for a while. Now, does it absolutely hit on all of these topics of embodiment and how we live out our genders in the church? Of course, it, it is provocative, right. but from a different perspective. Yes. So the book itself, so there are three chapters on Mary, which are dominantly exegetical, her ascent to God and the Annunciation. Right. It's very important for me to get into the weeds, as you say, to see that she was not forced, but completely had choice and freely embraced both the cost and the benefit of saying yes to God. It was important for me to think about her embodiment and Mm -hmm. how even in light of Jewish purity laws, what it meant for her to house the holiness, the the body of God and the person of the son. Yes. So I'm paying attention, especially to Luke. And Mm -hmm. then I have a chapter on her ministry Mm. in which I pay attention to all the things that she does for the kingdom. So yes, giving birth to Jesus, parenting him, but also shaping his ministry, the wedding at Cana, being a participant at Pentecost. And so there's a whole lot more to say about her than her motherhood. Yes, we know her because she gives birth to Jesus, but she is a multidimensional person in the New Testament. I've, I've said a few instances, I could have written that book and it would have been simple in a sense mm. that, mm. oh, a Protestant thinking about Mary, I'm doing ex Jesus. That's kind right. of my home territory. Right. But for a very long time, really since my dissertation, I've been asking a different question. How do we speak of God correctly yes. when we are instructed by virtue of scripture and tradition to call God father? Yes. What are we doing? And right. recognizing that many feminist, womanist theologians have said there are problems with that language. Yes. Some of those critiques are legitimate. I was trying to answer that question too. So then there are three chapters about the gender of God. Is God male? Yes. The father, is God the father male? And everyone would say no. Or I think everyone would say no. Right. <laughs> right. An interesting response to my book, actually. I thought, well, no one would say God, the father is male, but shockingly on social media, this happens almost every day. (laughs) So actually I've come to believe that that what I wrote is even more necessary and important than I imagined. Yes. Yes. So God is the father is not male. And then probably the more controversial and the hardest to write was a chapter called God is not masculine. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to gender God? And here I mean, God, the father does the way that God works with initiation, with creation, God is sovereign is that rightly described as masculine? And my argument is that no, that's not a fitting way to describe what God as God does. Right. And then the final chapter in that section is on the maleness of Jesus. Mm. (laughs) Let me say very clearly, I believe that Jesus was male. (laughs) I also have gotten interesting questions on this point. Totally do. Yes. (laughs) At least the way that we read the New Testament, right? There's no kind of questions about this. Right. But I do believe that if we affirm the virginal conception, which I do wholeheartedly, then he is male in a way that is distinct, (laughs) that he gets his humanity from her miraculously through the Holy Spirit. So I reflect on really the maleness of Christ in his embodiment and how that is unparalleled and therefore has implications for all of us who are caught up into participation. So I was wrestling for a very long time. And you write, Wes, you understand the difficulties of this, like my table of contents, how the pieces were organized, excruciating. Yes, indeed. Kind of the light bulb for me was these go together. These are not two separate projects. 
how we speak rightly of God is by paying attention to the mm. way in which God came mm. among us mm. in the story of the incarnation. And so they actually perfectly kind of fell in with one another. I think about embodiment of both. I think about gender of both. Yes. I think about roles of both God yes. and Mary. And that's kind of how it fell out. Well, I think it I think it came together wonderfully. I mean, it really doesn't read as if it's two separate projects kind of fused together. It's more organic than that. You know, Amy, I for me, one of the most theologically provocative claims in the book, I think, is is the one you just alluded to, that because Jesus is male in a way that differs from every other male, insofar as he's born of a virgin, that means that his maleness can be inclusive and and universally accessible and identifiable in a way that it 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 wouldn't be otherwise. I to be totally honest, I wasn't sure what I think about that claim. Do we need to say that in order to have a male savior who can save women, he needed to be born of a virgin or wow. or or could, I mean, I'm with you. I believe in the virginal conception of Jesus, but <laughs> if Jesus weren't virginally conceived, would, would that represent a, a blockage to his being able to be universally savingly accessible, so to speak? Does that make sense? It does. And that's a that's an insightful question that I really appreciate. And some of the conversations I've had over the last few months, this has come up a mm. few times. And so mm. I really appreciate the attentiveness from which this question comes. At base, of course, we would have to say that God can save however God desires. Okay, so that caveat being out of the way. I would want to reflect more on this because you've put question actually in a way that I think I've been able to hear it maybe in some previous conversations okay. it was a bit muddy to me. So that's thank you for that. That's quite a gift. Sure. Actually. I, I think I would want to say that if our Savior was not virginally conceived, that still being totally human, yeah, he could be the representative high priest for all of us. So I don't want to communicate a necessity to yeah. kind of bind God into, yes. hey, if you want to save women, it had to be this. Sure. Sure. I, I would not want to communicate that. Sure. So maybe I need to adjust my language. Well, yeah. Would it be fair to say one of the theological issues here is, are there separate male and female natures oh, such, such that if Christ... Mm. took a male nature, therefore he's incapable of saving women? Or, or is there something fundamentally human exactly. that unites that unites exactly. all of us? So I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but... No, um, no, that's actually incredibly helpful. So yes, I would affirm the Imago Dei and all, like a shared, a common humanity. And, and that's well said. That That's how, that's how we're all caught up into it. So it's not a necessity, and I despise stereotypes with every fiber of my being. So I do not believe in two distinct natures that we have to fit into. Exactly. So, so I don't want to say it had to be that mm. way, mm. but maybe I want to comfort. I am believe I'm coming from it from the angle of I think this is what Scripture actually gives us. Yes. This is what Matthew and Luke, at great great cost yes. <laughs> in their era, said. This is a virginal conception. They give us this truth. I think Paul is actually aware of it and reflects on it. That's what I'm thinking about these days. Mm. But mm. give given that, and it is a given. Yeah. Then to me, that seems an incredible grace, not a necessity, 
right. but a giftedness in that if this is how our Savior came, if we are understanding our texts correctly, then my goodness, this inclusiveness. And this is an important point to me because were Christ human, where he conceived of a male and a female, normal human conception, we would still be caught up to and saved in him. And then maybe we would say the participation in Christ is on on a spiritual level, which is highly important, that his body is distinct to me, brings in the embodied nature of our faith, that there's something that I am caught up into his flesh in a way that would not have been true if God chose to come among us in a different way. So not a necessity or it had to be this way because male and female are so vastly different. But this is what happened. Right. So can we reflect on, to me, that's so incredibly powerfully embracing and inclusive. Well, and you know, it's as you're speaking, I'm wondering perhaps if the the theological category of fittingness would Mm. would be good here. So it's not a necessity, but there is something fitting about it taking place this way, that it 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 highlights something about the quality of grace and our salvation that we might need to have highlighted. And a fittingness. Also, it seems to me to unite Christ as the recapitulation of the first human, the first human. Yeah. So I, I, I do believe, as so many of the early fathers make this comparison, this Adam and Eve, Christ and Mary parallel, there's something really fitting about that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> very right. Right. Hey, everybody, a quick word. Here's some fun news for you to chew on as you enjoy the 100th episode of the Living Church Podcast. Yes, today we are 100 episodes old, and we've got more amazing conversations, fun, and fellowship to come, but not over the airwaves. Well, over the airwaves too. My friends, we are going to have more Living Church events this year and in 2024. We will do this in person. We're ramping up with some events that have registration and information coming available very soon. But for now, here are two that you can go ahead and start planning for. November 16th to 18th of this year, we will have a preaching conference in New York City in the heart of Manhattan at the Parish of Calvary St. George's. And in April of 2024, we will have a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. These are going to be a lot of fun. Stay tuned for more. And don't forget that you can give back to the Living Church and help support refreshing ecumenical Anglican conferences and pilgrimages by becoming a podcast supporter. Anywhere from 99 cents to $9.99 a month. To check it out, click the link in the show notes today. You know, my mind also goes to, I've been reading just kind of for my own enrichment, Edwin Hoskins' commentary on the Gospel of John that he was working on when he died. Probably most of our listeners will recognize his name because he was the translator of Bart's famous Epistle to the Romans commentary, but he was a an Anglo-Catholic priest. I think he served at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge, and he he finds the virginal conception obliquely referenced in John chapter 1. Where 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 John says, you know, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. Mm-hmm. So it it highlights the connection between the virginal conception and our salvation. Wow. Uh, if if that's the way he was born, then that's the way we are born again. So, you know, it's a, perhaps a little bit speculative, but Hoskins is convinced that it's it's there, you know, in, in John chapter one. So, yeah. Well, that reminds me of a question we ask our students in class. We kind of go through all the explicit texts, but then mm-hmm. I have a day in which I have us read things like John 1, Hebrews yeah. 1, Romans 1. Yes. Beginning of where is maybe, where is Mary assumed if not explicit? And I say, yeah. yes, we're, we're reading some gaps of the text here. We have to be quite cautious. But if we see the unity of our canon, exactly. it's very plausible. They all know he's human. They all, exactly. all know actually he had a mother. So there is something truthful at base in those reflections. Exactly. I wonder if we could circle back for a moment and talk about the the gender of God question. Mm-hmm. So I I came across just this week actually a a prominent evangelical voice who is on the complementarian side of the of the gender conversation and he says uh, analogy and identity are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. God is a father, identity. Mm-hmm. While he may comfort like a mother, analogy, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. is not himself a mother, identity. Mm-hmm. That is why Jesus teaches us to pray our Father mm-hmm. who art in heaven. That is also why it would be a Trinitarian heresy to address God as mother instead of as father. And, you know, I don't disagree with that completely, but I it seems to me that we also need to be able to say father is an analogy as well, insofar mm-hmm. as God is not a father in the way that human fathers are fathers. That's correct. So, so I wonder I wonder if you could just talk a bit about that. And I didn't see what you're alluding to there, but it is such a common mode of conversation. Maybe 15, 20 years ago in books that I cite pretty frequently in my own, This Is My Name Forever, and just some of the Trinitarian kind of naming debates that maybe were just happening at the end of my seminary career. I kind of paid attention. People are debating, what do we call God in? church that that's some of these questions for me and so that kind of idea is 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 as you said a moment ago fitting to scripture Mm -hmm. god is named as father god has maternal qualities god has paternal qualities but is only named as father so i don't disagree but i i end up agreeing with that statement for different reasons that at least aren't articulated in that statement yeah so i think initially i would have gone along the line of saying well, yeah, God is father, but he's not like the fathers that we know. And that is correct because unlike, say, Zeus, right, right? Our God does not impose himself sexually upon a woman to conceive this demigod, right? Which brings so, us back to Mary again. Exactly, right. Both her agency and the way in which her body is respected in the Annunciation. Yes. yes, all true. That being said, There is something actually right about saying that God is father, not mother. And and I have to, again, give give praise to to Matt Milliner here. Mm. He's the one that gave me this phrase. Jesus called God father because he already had a mother. He already had one who gave birth to him and nursed him. That was not God. In the incarnation, God the Father, through the overshadowing presence of the Holy Spirit, causes the birth of the son in the flesh by partnering with Mary. Yeah, that's kind of that's exactly what we mean when we say father. Now not in a sexualized way, right. but cause of a child. That is 
that is correct of why we see father. And here I've had to be also quite, quite careful. I totally believe in the eternal begottenness of the son. This is an eternal relationship. Right. And yet I make the argument. I, I, I think that we use that language of fatherhood. Scripture uses that language. Jesus uses that language because it does capture what has happened in the incarnation itself. And it is through that lens that then we get the right language for God eternally. Right. So I, I I don't know who this this fellow is that you're quoting. Totally agree with him. We really should only address God as father. Now, I I would be a little bit more flexible to say that if someone's prayer life or even in a church service, like I recognize, and maybe this person hasn't been as exposed as I have, there are a lot of people who really spiritually wrestle with paternal life. God. Absolutely. And I, you know, that has not been my experience, but I want to respect and give space for those for whom it is. Very much. I so. hope that I could maybe through relationship lead them to a place where they see that when they call God father, what they're really saying is that God became human for me. And then I can address God in this way, just as Jesus did. You know, I, I as I was thinking about our conversation today, I, I was thinking about some of Sarah Coakley's work. I think I think many of our our listeners will be familiar with her her work and she she engages this question of you know should we call God father? Can we call God father especially feminists? And she says here this is at the end of her book God sexuality and the self. She says the true meaning of father is to be found in the trinity. Mm-hmm. Not dredged up from the scummy realm of human patriarchal fatherhood. Uh-huh. As Jesus himself insisted so evocatively, mm-hmm. call no man father except God alone. Mm-hmm. So the, it's, it seems to me that she's trying to get at, there is an analogous relationship between human fatherhood and divine fatherhood, but there's also importantly a, a strong disanalogy. God's fatherhood is unlike any fatherhood on earth in a strong sense. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's it's interesting too, isn't it, to reflect on the direction of the thought in Ephesians. It's not that we take human fatherhood as we know it and project that onto God. It's it's yes. the reverse. You know, God yeah. creates human fatherhood as a kind of echo or 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 token in some way of 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 his own life as 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 you say the the source and and eternal givenness of the son's life. So right. yeah, you know, yeah. If, if I might build upon that, because I think that's so at the heart of what has been so important to me theologically. And I read Copley early on. I have mm. the deepest respect for her. And she yes. kind of again started me down that road of of thinking. But then I encountered Lynn Tonstad, and yeah. she may not be as familiar to some of our listeners. Right. Definitely, there are ways in which I would be very different from her. Sure. But what I appreciate about her work is that she kind of call, even she has a critique of Coakley herself, yes. kind of calls like when we say, yeah, father, but not like all other fathers. Yeah, right. father, but we don't mean that. Right. The crossed out father. She was rather convincing to me that when we continually do that crossing mm. out, actually that thing is quite present in the mm. background by mm. virtue of being denied. Yeah. And so my presentation would be a slight difference from mm. Copley's then, I mm. think, through the kind of pathway of Tonstad, although yeah. ended up in very different places in some ways. But I think I would say, yes, I agree with Copley. It's not like we think about fatherhood from the ground up, just kind of wishful yeah. thinking religion. That's how we talk about God. But neither actually. Would I put fatherhood in the Trinity? I would mm. put fatherhood in the incarnation. 
and again, who am I to disagree with Coakley? Like she no, is no, a, no, sure. yeah. an amazing theologian, yeah. but maybe I'll stand in my place of exegesis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually, we don't know God in say, we right. know God through the person of Jesus Christ Yes, and in incarnation. And that's what I was articulating about. We call God yes. father because Jesus already has a mother. Yes. That then tells us, hey, this eternal relationship of begotten, not created, the right language to use there is father yeah. because we get to speak about that eternal relationship. Yes. By virtue of being caught up into Jesus, our representative. That's that's excellent. I mean, that I, I thank you for that. That's really helpful, and it I take it as confirmation of what I say to my students sometimes. The reason we use father language for God is not because we're somehow more attached to masculine imagery. It's right. simply because Jesus used it. We're following the the pattern that we've been given historically, particularly this first century Jewish man called God Father, and and we have access to that God. Only through him and right. and sort of as Robert Jensen says, piggybacking on him. Right. You know, we ride his coattails into the right. into the intimacy that he enjoys with right. God. So and and I think I agree with those scholars who say that Jesus did it, so we said that that's in many ways that that is good enough. Right. Where I press a little bit further is to listen to maybe not exclusively, but pretty dominantly the voices of women that say, yeah, that all sounds nice, but I still feel excluded. Or am I really included in that? Exactly. And I have then found when I call God Father, I am evoking this entire reality by which God became human that shockingly included women in the person of Mary. Yes. And, and that therefore, like Father has become the most inclusive term that I can possibly imagine. Well, that that allows me to say, you know, for listeners who want to pick up the book, I think one of the things that's impressive about it and, and something I'm grateful for is it is recognizably a work of biblical scholarship, but you really are trying to listen to a wide range of voices. And you know, everyone from Erie Gray to to Tonstad shows up in the footnotes. And I, I I hope that will be a model for biblical scholarship going forward. As you and I both know, so many biblical scholarly monographs end up citing other biblical scholars, but there's not much engagement with theologians or or cultural critics or, you know, theorists of, of different kinds. So uh, thank you for that aspect of the book. I think that's a gift of where I've been trained and by the people who read deeply and broadly and uh, and just the weight that I had on this project and and some good editors that were patient. Yes. <laughs> I know that I haven't crossed all T's and dotted all I's. Even our conversation, right, has evoked ways. Right. Oh, I want to do that better. Sure. But I needed to listen to everyone yes. <laughs> as much yes. as I could. Yes. And, and so many of those on the right and the left, so to speak, have some similar deep desires. Yes. <laughs> about getting this right. Yes. Who are we? Who is God? And to listen widely was such a gift. And to listen widely to traditions. Like I really sought to sit at the feet of Catholic and Orthodox theologians. Mm -hmm. Now I recognize I don't end in some of the same conclusions, but I hope they can see that I'm aiming to worship the same yes. God. Yes, so um, we can all come in that, around at that point. <laughs> indeed. Well, the book is called Women and the Gender of God by Amy Peeler. And in my judgment, it represents a real step forward for evangelical audiences in particular to get some questions. As you say, these have often been hotly debated in more mainline settings, in more academic settings, but to encourage it more among evangelical theologians and biblical scholars is, I think, a real gift, Amy, among many other things of the book. So thank you. I, I wonder if you might just 
take a minute or two and summarize, what do you hope a reader of the Living Church or a, a listener of this podcast, what would you hope they might take away mostly from the book? Oh, well, I love that question. Through the process of, of writing this, my worship week by week with my brothers and sisters at my local parish has been energized and deepened. I mean, there were some weeks in the kind of heat of reading some of these things that, you know, just this is how writing and research is I'm like, do I believe all of this? What am I yeah. saying? What does this mean? Like really grieving some yes. uh, doubts or some, it, it, it was hard. Yes. <laughs> yes. Lots of tears, lots of blood, sweat, and tears. Even in our Eucharistic prayers, almost every line in some way is touching upon the simple good news of our story mm. that the Holy God says, I'm not going to leave you mm. or abandon you, but dwell among you and redeem you. And so my hope would be that for those of us who are blessed, and again, I have the zeal of a convert, for those of us who are blessed to be within the Anglican communion, to hear yes. these words that have stood the test yes. of time, that if if someone happens to pick up my book and then they go to worship, mm. that will be deepened for mm. them. Mm. I, I am, am teary most weeks mm. when I celebrate Eucharist yes. for, for any variety of reason of how the Holy Spirit is meeting yes. me. But I can't deny for a good now four or five years, it's been these kind of thoughts. Yes. And again, I know I'm speaking from a place that would be different, but for women, especially coming out of maybe low church, very conservative yes. circles, I have kind of maybe unearthed some of the, just the voices that say, you're not welcome. You're not yes. a part of this. And yes. that wasn't anyone directly. I had good pastors. I had yes. good teachers, but man, it's in the air. And so yes. it has been a, a restorative process for me of, of the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, I, I don't think of you as less. Yes. yes. You're welcome at this place. And that, that there, there's not a week that goes by that I'm not deeply moved in gratitude of Amen. God's love. Yes. Amy Peeler, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I hope listeners will find their way to your book and your other scholarship. God bless. And hopefully we'll talk to you again on the podcast at some point. Love it. Always good to have time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. What's it like to be a Kenyan woman called to Anglican leadership? In two weeks, we have a treat. We will have a conversation with Dr. Esther Mambo and her colleague, McKenna Jacqueline, about finding their ways into a ministry of teaching and scholarship and leadership against the odds and how God has provided. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Happy Easter and peace.